And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast with special guest Gene Wolf. Hello, Gene. I am here. Thank I'm you. I'm listening for... to your introduction. I would not have guessed that you were high on top of the whatever it was. <laughs> well, we're high <laughs> on something, Gary, uh, Gene. In fact, I wouldn't have guessed that you were high at all. <laughs> well. well. That's a compliment of sorts right there. I think it is. I, I think we should start, Gene, with a congratulations. Congratulations on receiving the Damon Knight Grand Master Award this week. Why, thank you very much. I don't deserve it, but I will take it. My I father can't... told me, take the money and run for the train, and that's what I intend to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had a good year because it was the year almost not quite began with this wonderful bizarre uh, setting for, for the, uh, for the uh, first uh, Chicago Literary Hall of Fame Lifetime Achievement Award. Was that what it was called? No, the Henry Blake Fuller Award. Yes. And you, yes. Were, you what, are... What do you mean by wonderful, bizarre setting? Just because we had our own carousel? <laughs> we had our own carousel. We had our own circus train. We had, what, about 90 peep shows from the turn of the century. Uh, I didn't get to see those. Just typical oh, awards back right. then. Well, David Hartwell was 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 uh, hogging them all, so that's why you didn't get to see them. <laughs> Must have spent all his change. Huh? I, <laughs> but at, at any rate, uh, so March in March you had uh, that wonderful award, which is not a science fiction award. It's an award from uh, from the Midwestern literary community. Um, yeah. And then and then you end up. Uh, in the ending up the year with the Grand Master Award, which I think, whether you think you earned it or not, is the most appropriate one yet because the Grand Master Award is now called the Damon Knight Grand Master Award. And Damon Knight was an important figure for you in your early career, wasn't he? Damon Knight was as close to being my mentor as I have ever had. And I would only say that he was my mentor because we never used the word. But... Uh, that's really what he was. I learned more from him than from anyone else. How did you come to start working with him? Uh, it was simple enough. I got an invitation from Lloyd Biggle Jr. to mm -hmm. join Sephora. I had sold one science fiction story to Worlds of If, and it had, it had run... And Lloyd Biggle was uh, something or other of Sefwa at that time, the vice president or treasurer or something. And uh, he sent me an invitation to join Sefwa. Mm -hmm. And he said that they had market list, that uh, they would be available to members. And I was very interested in getting market list. And so I joined, uh, joined up. Uh, the first market list I got had an invitation saying that, uh, had a listing saying that Damon Knight was going to do an anthology called Orbit and was open to submissions. So I wrote a science fiction story and sent it to Damon. And Damon said that the, uh, the way I had it laid out was lousy, <laughs> but if he could cut it up and lay it out properly, uh, he would buy it. So I told him, "Go ahead." So was um, that? Yeah. Hmm? Was that? Yes. Was that? Was that the first volume of Orbit, or that was actually in Orbit Two? By the time oh. I got a story into him, Orbit One was closed, but he was taking stories for Orbit Two. Okay. And that's where that one appeared. Uh, the title is Trip Trap. If you yeah. happen to have a copy of Orbit Two uh, in your desk drawer, I actually do. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan is an anthologist who, like I think every respectable anthologist since the 1970s, has probably, I'm speaking, in, I'm putting words in your mouth, Jonathan, probably mm -hmm. see, seen Damon Knight and Terry Carr as mentors as well. Well, it's hard to be mentored by someone you've never met, but certainly the two people I would love to have met and had a lengthy conversation about structuring stories and how you do you know, the, the business of anthology work, because it seems to me that... Uh, 
Damon particularly seems to have had a very strong influence on a particular group of writers. I mean, uh, you're saying, Gene, that he's influenced you a, a great deal, and it always struck Damon me... Damon was very influential uh, while he was editing Orbit, yes, absolutely. He was also, of course, a uh, highly respected reviewer. Mm. I was going to say that I felt that uh, R.A. Lafferty's most coherent work was the work that uh, Damon edited. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when uh, Orbit closed, I think it was I think Orbit Twenty Two was the last book in the series, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, and it included an index of the entire series, so that you could tell who had the most stories. <laughs> and the one who had the most stories was Kate Wilhelm. Funnily enough. And second place, one story behind her, as I remember, uh, was Lafferty, or were Lafferty and me, tied, with the same number of stories. That's impressive. That's not bad company to be in. No, it certainly isn't. But did he really, I mean, okay, that first story where he rearranged it for you, and I've heard that Mm -hmm. he did that. I've heard that, uh, as, as Jonathan said about the Lafferty stories that he was an astonishing line editor. Did he continue to, um, to rearrange your stories? or did, How quickly did you learn from him to edit? To, that that to, was to, the only one of mine that he rearranged. Oh, really? So, yes. So, so uh-huh. You're a quick learner then. Well, I learned not, not to use that arrangement. <laughs> and I would guess by the time you get to something like Seven American Nights, which is towards the end of the, your run of stories at Orbit, that because I think it was like that was not twenty Orbit twenty one or something, uh, he must have just basically not been doing a great deal to the to the stories at all because they were accomplished. He did, he did very little to my stories actually. Yeah. Uh, he was a very nice editor to work with, and he made very few changes. When he did make a change, it was a change for the better. Uh, although he he suggested a few changes that I thought were uh, a little too picky. Uh, a deal table, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that I think that a great many readers would not know what is meant by a deal table. Yeah. Have and is he the only editor I guess that, that's had a major impact on you over the years? No, uh, but you will never know who the other one was because I cannot remember his name. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I started writing because uh, my roommate, Lou Hampton, wanted us to be artist and writer uh, team in the same room in our dorm, you know. And he was doing pen and ink illustrations for one of our college magazines, this was at Texas Mm A&M. And he wanted me to write stories, which he would then illustrate. And so I wrote some stories. And I wrote the first one and, and gave it to the editor there, who was a junior, was short and stocky and swarthy, and I have no idea what his name was. And he went through it with a red pen and greatly improved most of my sentences. And I looked at what he was doing, and I was shocked to the core and deeply offended, which I dared not show. And I went off thinking to myself, well, by golly, he's not going to be able to do that with any of the others. I'm going to write him so good that he can't change him. And he didn't change his second story quite as much as he had changed the first one. And he didn't change the third story quite as much as he had changed the second one. And same story with the fourth story, which was the last one of those that I did. And so he had quite an influence, but I don't know his name, and I wish I could thank you. I think that there are enough serious Gene Wolfe scholars out there that somebody listening to this will probably go find the archive of Texas A&M literary magazines. Just give us the dates, and we'll track them down for you. <laughs> I, I know uh, that at least one person has tried to do that. Oh, really? And has told, uh, been told by the Texas A&M library that those copies were stolen long ago. 
because because of you? I would assume so, but I don't know. Huh. That's it may have we... been that there were secret messages coded <laughs> in there for spies or something. All that all that I can remember was that one of them had a lovely pinup picture of Iva Gardner in it. Because, <laughs> of course, this is something that, that, that you do all the time, isn't it, Gene? You, you, you embed secrets in the text of your stories. Of course. So, so, I assume, Don't we all? Of course. Well, I assume something can be read backwards <laughs> at midnight or something. Because, well, because... <laughs> oh, oh, only, only by moonlight under a full moon. <laughs> yes. But you had said, uh, um, but, oh, I had a question about the, the Texas A&M stories. You don't have those stories at all anymore yourself. No, they have, I do have them because they have been reprinted by David Aronowitz. Uh-huh. And I somewhere around here I have David Aronowitz's reprint of them. He uh, does some small press stuff, mm-hmm. uh, pretentious press. That's the name of the press, I hope. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Other small presses could be described that way. Um, were you, when you began writing these stories for Texas A&M, which was not a genre market, did you start out writing science fiction and fantasy stories? No, not really. I, I tried to write all kinds of stories. Uh, what had happened? What happened then was it? I dropped out of Texas A&M, which is why I wrote mm-hmm. no more for the commentator. And got drafted and went to Korea and got missed by the Chinese army and came back and got a degree from a different, uh, from University of Houston and got married and so forth. And we were badly in need of money. We had children. My wife had to quit her job. So uh, we were living on my earnings, which were not munificent. And uh, I decided maybe I could write some stuff and sell it and make a little extra money. And so I started writing, and I wrote all kinds of stuff. But the Mm -hmm. stuff that sold was fantasy and science fiction. The first thing I sold was a ghost story. And the second thing that I sold was a science fiction story. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, you... When you need money, you, <laughs> you write the stuff that has been bringing it in. So I wrote fantasy and I wrote science fiction. But you'd been reading science fiction all along. Oh, sure. I read science fiction as a kid. Yeah. Uh, I used to hide behind the candy case in the Richmond Pharmacy and read the pulp magazines because I didn't have the money to buy them. Mm-hmm. And there were all these pulp magazines, and I would smuggle a new copy of Planet Stories or whatever back behind the candy case and squat there and read the shortest story. And then the next time I'd read the next shortest story and so on. Shorter story because the shorter the story was, a better chance I had of finishing it before the pharmacist saw me and kicked me out. (laughs) I'm curious. I understand that you started writing science fiction and fantasy because you could, you know, you could sell it. There was a market for it, but sure. you know that was 60 years ago, and there's been over 100 short stories. There's dozens of novels. What keeps you coming back to it? Oh my goodness, I don't know. Uh, Do you feel it lets you do something? Yeah, Gary will have to answer that question for me because I, I can't. Okay. Gary is smarter than I am, and he prides himself on it, so he will be able to answer it. Oh, you're just trying to get in good with Mom again. <laughs> well, you know, she's old. We have to give her something no. to smile about when she listens to this, Gary. Well, I think um, I, I, I'm thinking of... Um, Science fiction as being a small box to contain what you've been doing the last 50 years or so. But uh, I think there's a lot of material there that you're attracted to because you play with it like clay. Uh, and not just uh-huh. science fiction. There, there's, uh, Home Fires is, is, is partly old-fashioned science fiction, but nobody would mistake it for anything other than a Gene Wolfe novel. 
and and the Wizard Knight. So you, you play, you, if you don't mind, you're playing with what fantasy can do and what you can do using fantasy, or pirate stories, or adventure stories, or science fiction stories, or uh, just, I don't know, magic realism stories. Uh, I, I think, my guess is that you just find that material too much fun to resist. Well, that may be. There are a lot of people uh, who want you to rewrite stories that they love and are familiar with only in different places with different names. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are writers who have made their incri- entire career out of rewriting Cinderella. You know that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to rewrite in a different place with a different name some story that people have already read. I'm trying to write a new story. And uh, so here we go. You know, it ends up as being fantasy or it ends up as being science fiction or at least being labeled that way. Uh, Peace, for example. Uh, I never intended as a science fiction novel, but of course that's how it's marketed or fantasy novel or whatever you like. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, would you really want to be confined to writing what people used to think of as New Yorker stories, where you can't use any of this material? No. You have to no. write about bad marriages. No, I, I, don't, I don't want to write that stuff. I had, for two years, they gave me a free subscription in the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sold them a story. That's why they why I remember the story. Yeah. The tra- was it the train or the... Uh... Yeah, on the train. On the train, yes. On the train. And uh, so I got the free sub, and for two years, I read all the fiction in every issue. And it's a weekly, you know. I mean, that's actually quite a bit of reading. That's quite a bit of mm-hmm. fiction. And I kept wondering, in about nine-tenths of the stories, I thought, why in the hell did they buy this? <laughs> they pay terrific rates. They publish on slick paper. Why did they buy this? And I finally decided that they were buying the stories that writing teachers, creative writing teachers, and Ivy League universities were sending to them or suggesting be sent to them. And uh, they they fell into quite a narrow range. Uh, You had lots and lots of upper-middle-class people. You had lots and lots of futility. And Mm -hmm. uh, the sadness of life, the tragedy of life, you know, this sort of thing. And there there was a sameness, I thought, to all of them. I still remember uh, the Ursula K. Le Guin story about the expedition to the South Pole manned entirely by women. Sir. Because that was a New Yorker story, and it was so different and so refreshing to find that story in the New Yorker. (laughs) You know. My God, somehow, someway, some editor broke out of the mold and, and published something different and interesting and, you know, thought-provoking and fun. And I really like this. Mm-hmm. I wish they do it a lot more. Well, they used to, you know. Back in the early 50s, the New Yorker would publish Shirley Jackson and John Collier, and they, they published... Uh, some very influential fantasy stories. That, that's well before I was reading it, of course. Oh, oh yeah. I was reading that. it, I believe, in the 70s, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that was probably the height of the, uh, well, the kind of story you described. Um, and, and, and yet you're right. Most American writers, outside of genre writers, aspire to sell a story to the New Yorker more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can understand that. I, When I was a boy, the only person I knew who was 
writing creatively. And she was a writer, although she was not a published writer, was mm-hmm. the mother of one of my friends. And she wrote stories and sent them to the Saturday Evening Post. And when they were rejected by the Saturday Evening Post, which they all were, she -hmm. dropped them into a drawer. She had no interest in selling to any market other than the Saturday Evening Post, which was the top short story market in its day, you know, Mm -hmm. in its heyday, which this is what, what the time period we're talking about. I was like in junior high school, right? Um, yeah, you weren't even born yet. I was born. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Two of us were. Anyway. anyway. Well, any, anyway, you know, uh, there are people who aim at the top magazine market, and that's their Valhalla. That's, if they do that, their life will be fulfilled. But they I don't was... need money very much. This is why I always bridle at suggestions that Shakespeare's sonnets were really written by the Earl of something or other. The Earl of something or other didn't need the money. <laughs> you think that, that's, that's the, pri- the primary motivation for actually writing this stuff is because you're going to get paid? I think that is a primary motivation Certainly. for a for, uh, heck of a lot of people. And if you're going to write stuff like that, and not attach your name to it so that you don't get any fame. You, you're going to credit it to uh, some guy who writes for the theater. Uh, what are you after except the money? Very, I would agree very much. I mean, because after all, you know, the only t- t- well, the things you get out of writing, apart from the satisfaction of doing it, I imagine, because I'm not a writer myself. Uh, uh, yeah, would be... if, you, if you're writing for the satisfaction of doing it, you don't have to get it published. True. You know, the, write, the, the write myth- it and put it in the drawer or whatever. The, the mythical J.D. Yeah. Salinger approach. Hmm? Yeah, where well, he's, he's supposed to write it all. Or the Emily Dickinson approach, uh, which must, her poetry must have been very satisfying to her because she didn't make very many serious efforts for getting it published. But, you know, in science fiction, there are people who are, I think, as... Uh, as narrowly focused as the New Yorker or the Saturday Evening Post. I mean, I'm sure you must have heard, when you started becoming a a well-known name in the science fiction field, there must have been people out there saying, why don't you write more like Heinlein, or why don't you write more like Asimov? Well, I I suppose there were, but I never particularly wanted to write imitation Heinlein or imitation Asimov. Uh, They had already done that. Well, exactly. When did you, you feel? Know, I, I I read a poem just oh day before yesterday or so, uh, the eye of a little yellow god or something like that, and the author was plainly writing imitation Kipling, mm-hmm. and not doing it very well. Hmm. When did you begin to feel you were finding your own voice as a writer? I don't. No, just when I could say that. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, because there's the period you know, you're, you're writing for... I, I, the... I would say that it was probably when I wrote The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Why that one I... in particular? I don't know. It just it, it seemed to me that I was really... Uh, getting where I wanted to be, you know, uh, mm. the thing so often with finished story is that you set it aside for a while and then you read it over and it's rather disappointing when you remember the concept that you had, mm-hmm. the ideas that you had when you were writing it and so forth. And you think, well, this is is kind of a bad imitation of it, of what I really wanted to write. But uh, with Fifth Head Surfers, I started feeling like I was really getting it. You're talking about the the original uh, novella. Novella, yeah, the novella. Uh, Because, it's interesting because uh, that was, 
that was pretty much when I first discovered your work myself, was reading the book, of course, starting with the novella, and thinking this is a completely different voice from anything I'd heard. And then the other thing which struck me as being I had not seen it all until that time was when you have the other two stories that make up the book unpacking the first story. So you realized at some way, at some level that these were, uh, there were secret doorways in the, in the first story, which lead to the other stories. And that's been a very characteristic pattern as well. Well, that, that's, uh, that's true of just about anything. I think there are other stories that could be written, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm trying to to think of a good illustration for it, but not coming up with one. But oh, I I think you know mo- mo- most things if they're good, uh, you can open other you could open other doors. Oh, I, I, I there I, just to throw out an example not from science fiction. There are at least two novels uh, that I know of based on um, Great Expectations. Of what happens to Mag, mm-hmm. which was off for those years in Australia. Uh, there's a famous novel by Jean Reese based on, uh, is it Jane Eyre? Uh, or Wuthering Heights, I guess. The Mad Woman in the Attic. So, yeah, you can take, the, the, but, but that's different, I think, taking the unexplored parts of a, of a classic text from taking the unexplored parts of your own stories and sort of developing them. I don't think many writers do that with as much sophistication as you do. Well, uh, that may be. They they probably have too much humility to do it. <laughs> I don't. You know, I uh, I think well, gee, that was fun. Now let's go over and and tell this one. <laughs> uh, what was it like? You know, from his standpoint. Right, right, uh, Don Quixote from the, the viewpoint of Sancho Panza's donkey or something, you know. Mm-hmm. I see that um, Peace, which would, would have been, I think, what, the next novel after Fifth Head of Cerberus has be, recently been reprinted by Tor with a introduction by Neil Gaiman in it. And I was curious whether you, uh, how you got from Fifth Head of Cerberus to Peace. There's about three years in between when you seem to have mostly been writing short fiction. Goodness sake, I don't know. Uh, I wanted to do uh, peace was one of those things where I think I said this before earlier in our in our conversation. I wasn't trying to write fantasy. I wasn't trying to write science fiction. Uh, I wanted to do uh, a mainstream novel and what I hoped would be a mainstream novel about uh, life uh, in a small town and, uh, you know, no werewolves. <laughs> and uh, so I got in there and, of course, there were, there were dark elements to the story, as I think there always are, or nearly always are in that type of story. Uh, but it wasn't primarily fantasy or primarily mm. science fiction, although the narrator is dead, I admit, which uh, may be too much of a fantasy device. I'm trying to think if there are other stories with dead narrators that are considered mainstream stories, and I'm sure there are, but... Uh, but the reception of that book coming after the fifth head of Cerberus and uh, and a few years before, several years really before the book of the New Sun, that was mostly was it mostly read by science fiction and fantasy readers? Do you think? I don't think it was mostly read by anybody to tell oh. you the truth. <laughs> uh, it, it didn't make much of a mark anywhere, as far as I know. And, and yet, later. It's still- yeah, later, later reprintings uh, were what made the mark, not the original publication by Scribner's, I believe it was Scribner's. Mm-hmm. Was it Scribner's, do you know? Um, I can probably look that up fairly quickly. 
Uh, is it published by Scribner's? Yes. I even have the Dewey Decimal. You have an iPhone, don't you? I have uh, an iPad, uh, which which I look things up on because when Jonathan and I were doing podcasts, he would always appear to know more than I did, and then I realized that he was looking stuff up on me. Uh huh. Yes, I have I... lunch with a guy like that, and <laughs> all I have to do is he's a historian, and all I have to do is make a statement. And he checks, he fact checks me on oh, his I, iPhone. During lunch, does he? Mm. During lunch, yes. Well, during lunch. I have, I've had students in my classes who, when I'm in the middle of I can see somebody Googling everything you say on the lecture, wanting to catch you up on it. Um, I, I some, would not be a bit surprised. No. Well, you've taught. I mean, you've taught at least at clarion workshops and that sort of thing, haven't you? And uh, oh yeah, yeah. I taught what's for Florida Atlantic University. I taught for some university in Oregon. Short. These are short course things, you know. Yeah. And uh, I taught a semester for uh, Columbia College in Chicago, and so on and so forth. Right. I remember that. What? Well, you weren't in my class. <laughs> I was not. I remember because Phyllis told me about it. I think Phyllis set you up for that, didn't she? Phyllis Eisenstein. Yeah. Yes, she did. Okay. Yeah, she she told me about it at the time. Um, which which reminds me of another. I know this is a, not necessarily a nostalgia thing, but it reminds me of that Windy City Writers Workshop that you and Phyllis and um, mm-hmm. George Martin and Aldous Budris and who am I leaving out of that? Oh, lots of people. I've got a... Oh. Rats. Good-looking girl. I can't think of her name. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> well, that doesn't narrow it down a lot. But, but at any rate, there was a... It, it does among writers. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We might cut that bit out. <laughs> well, she is. Ah, can't think of it. It'll come to me when I don't need it. At that time, she was a newspaper reporter for some paper up in Wisconsin. And Mm. I discovered that there were things that she and I knew that nobody else in the class knew. And uh, that was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Some, some, Some things about Wisconsin or just things in general? Uh, things about life and city politics and crime and that sort of thing. Oh, what's her name? Oh, dear. Oh. And did she become she a well-known? She married a guy that she met at a workshop that I taught in Taos. Uh-huh. I, I was one of the teachers, I should say. Oh, We had me, we had Jack Williamson. We had uh, Aldous Budres. We had uh, hmm, I don't know. It may it may have been just the three of us, but I think there was probably somebody else. And we all did a workshop in Taos. This was in connection with the Writers of the Future thing. Ah, okay. And she met this guy in uh, that workshop, and about a year later, they were married. Hmm. I can't. Well, begin. anyhow. Anyway. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Anyhow, that that was the Wendy Writers. Chuck Ott was in it. Did you name Chuck Ott? I did not. No. He was in there. But I remember because George Martin told me this uh, during this year's Worldcon that that you had read or presented a novella. Was it called The Feast of Saint Anne's? Uh, or The Feast of Saint Catherine's? Which one was it? Feast of Saint Catherine. Yeah. Feats of St. Catharines, uh, yeah. which l- later grew into or uh, evolved into the Book of the New Sun and all that followed, I suppose. Uh, and I thought, I want to ask about that in a minute, but I thought one of the charming things about that little group in, of, of, of uh, writers in the 70s is that there are now two of, two of you who come out with um, World Fantasy Life Achievement Awards. And yep. my guess, my guess is that somewhere down the line, George R. R. Martin may get a 
uh, a Grand Master Award from uh, the SF uh, SFWA as well. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. But okay, so what did I, I'm just really curious? What did they tell you as a group about the Feast of Saint Catherine's? Oh my! But that's a long time ago. Oh yeah. Uh, I think some of them said that I was starting it too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them said that the the opening sentences and so on were too uh, rococo, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. uh, fantastic, whatever. And uh, I don't think I paid much attention to those criticisms. It was, well, it was I was trying to write a novella, uh-huh. and well, I, I I started trying to write a short story. And <laughs> it got longer, and I decided I was writing a novelette, and then I decided I was writing a, no, a novella, and then I decided I threw caution to the winds and decided I was writing a novel, damn it. And, uh, <laughs> of course, after that, it went on and on. And I ended up, I had a trilogy, except that the fourth, the third book was about half again longer than the first two, either of the first two, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, my agent, Virginia Kidd, said, what you, you need to do is split this book down the middle and then make the two halves longer so that you have four books of approximately equal length, which is what I did. So the Sword of the Lictor was originally twice the length that it is and that became that plus the Citadel of the Autar. Yeah, I believe that the the title of the third volume, when there was only a third volume, was supposed to be the Sword of the Autark. Ah. And uh, I, I split it and made one the Sword of the Lictor and second one the Citadel of the Autark. I believe that's the way that went. Was there a point where you really... I can't look this stuff up on my iPad. For one thing, (laughs) I don't have an iPad. Uh Uh-huh. Was there a point where you began to think it was going to run for, what was it, a dozen novels or something that that it did in the end? I'm sorry... Sorry, I heard the end of that, but not the beginning of it. With the the New Sun uh, material, was there a point where... You realized it was going to run for as long as it as it ultimately did. You know, sort of. No, tw- no, tw- yeah. no, no. I uh, I got urged by David Hartwell to write Earth of the New Sun, which I never wanted to do, but mm. ended up having to do basically. And uh, then I wrote. Uh, Oh, night, night side, the long sun, and mm. as that developed, I realized that this was a, becoming a book of the new sun spinoff, and I didn't have the title at that time. Mm. But mm. Uh, what I was writing became a, a book of the new sun spinoff, and on that went, and I got the uh, the book of the long sun, and then uh, Joe Mayhew teased me about writing the book of the short sun. And uh, I thought to myself, he thinks I won't do it. (laughs) Well, I will do it. And so I wrote the book of the short shot. I did the same kind of thing with something that John Jakes teased me about. I wrote uh, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Jakes said, uh, "Now you can't. Now you'll have to write the death of Doctor Island." This was kidding me because uh, the uh, Island of Doctor Death and other stories had been announced by Isaac Asimov as having won the Nebula, and he was unmobbed by the committee and had to, to shamefacedly tell everyone that it had not won the nebula. It was runner-up 
to no award. Oh. And no award oh. had won the nebula. And <laughs> he thought that this really sucked. He didn't use that word, but he made it clear that that was his opinion of what mm. had gone on. And uh, so after that, and I, I came back with my tail between my legs, you know, and John Jakes, who was a friend at that time, said, now you'll have to write uh, The Death of Dr. Island, and then they'll give that to Nebula. <laughs> and so I said, he thinks I can't do that. Well, I will I will write The Death of Dr. Island, and I did, and it won the Nebula by God. <laughs> You, can, you seem to be able to write a story about anything. My suggestion was, and just file this away for future reference, if you write a story called No Award, <laughs> you'll win either way. Well, you know, it's a kind of a James Bond name, isn't it? Maybe, maybe it would work. Yeah. Are you still drawn to writing all the time? Yeah, I am. I am. I uh, I wrote two pages of a novel that I'm trying to write today, and I wrote two pages of an article I'm trying to do for the Software Bulletin today. And if I weren't on the phone now, I would probably be writing a letter to Tom Com Todd Compton. Good. Okay. <laughs> well, you can just tell us what you want to say to Todd and save yourself some work. <laughs> I would have to put. Uh, I would have to pull Todd's letter out of wherever <laughs> I have stuck it, and <laughs> see what he was talking about in there. To uh, better, ex to a better extent, I just remember that uh, he's somebody who hadn't written to me in maybe a year and a half. Uh -huh. But I sent him a Christmas card, and uh, I think he got the Christmas card and thought I ought to write to Gene again, so he wrote me. Is he, the, is, uh, he is uh, strange. He uh, He's tried to write fiction off and on. I've read some of it. It's awful. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, he can write history and sell it and get it published and all that. And So that's what he does. Well, one of the things you've been doing, it seems to me, which is fascinating, is, um, is since the whole massive... Uh, book of the Long Sun and Short Sun, it seems to me you've been just having a lot of fun writing anything you wanted to write. I mean, there's, there's, there's The Wizard Knight, which is a kind of revisiting of epic fantasy in a very different way, which was... And we can clarify something about that, because there, there are a lot of rumors that that was cut in half against your will, but I think you said that was no. actually written as two parts. Um, uh... It was just, uh, when I wrote the whole thing, it was just way too big, you know, uh, to market as a, a, a single book. And so I cut it, but I did not, I was not drugged, screaming and fighting into cutting it. <laughs> I just uh, looked around and wasn't too happy with the place where I cut it, but it was the only place that it could be cut that it would make sense. Uh -huh. And that was at uh, the death of uh, Abel. It seems to make a lot of sense when you realize what's going on in the second half. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, I mean, he's, you know, he's taken to Valhalla and then returns. Yeah. Um Boy, we're spoiling a lot of things here. I mean, we gave away peace already. Uh, that was being away. Oh, we didn't give away peace. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay. I can't even remember the name of the protagonist. I was trying to think of that, and I couldn't couldn't come up with it. Wait a minute. Um, I think we need to get you an iPad, Jane. We need to get you an iPad. Oh, come on. I know the name of that character. Uh, well, if I had a longer phone cord, I could go over to the shelf where yeah, it is. I'm going to use my iPad, it and it's about... Are you talking about Alden Dennis Weir? Dennis Weir. Alden Dennis, Dennis Weir. Weir, yes. Yeah. I think Jonathan got it faster than I did. Um, <laughs> but what I started to say was, so there's a kind of something built on the 
uh, scaffolding of a classic fantasy, and then there's a pirate story. There's essentially a gothic story with an evil guest. Um, the Sorcerer's House. Uh, Home Fires, which is a little bit of a pirate story and a little bit of an adventure story and a lot of a science fiction story. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why I, I got the sense with that. And by the way, we've talked about this before. Everybody... Uh, any number of people, not just myself, I know people at the tour offices, made the same mistake I did and kept calling it Home Fries. And I'll I, get you for this. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, this never crossed your mind. I, I want to see the story Home Fries. You did the Castle of the Otter. Mm-hmm. Well? Yeah, that that's because I was doing a... Uh in uh, an interview with Charles Ed Brown in the noisy restaurant, and he taped it uh, instead of taking notes like a good one. <laughs> uh, he taped it, and I was talking about the Citadel of the Autark, and when he heard his tape, he decided I was talking about something called the Castle of the Otter. And <laughs> so I wrote the Castle of the Otter just to make an honest journalist of him. That was very thoughtful of you. <laughs> that well, was the, fun. Oh, I, I imagine it was, and you—that's oh, what I mean. I, I get a sense you're having fun. The piece you wrote with Neil Gaiman on a walking tour of the shambles must have been just oh, yeah. a hoot. Yeah. Oh yeah. God, Neil. Neil would call me up and read what he wrote over the phone, and I would just. <laughs> Giggle and giggle <laughs> like a schoolgirl, listening to this stuff, and then I would sit down and try and eat, write something that was halfway equal to it, or almost equal to it, or close to equal to it, and send it to him, and then he would read it, and he would continue the story, and when he had enough, phone me up and read his continuation of it. That was how we did it. That sounded like fun. That's what I meant. It was fun. It was fun. Neil, of course, is a wonderful person. And uh, just beyond praise. Well, he's also uh, possibly your greatest admirer, or certainly one of your most prominent admirers. Well, I, I'm certainly his, you know. Well, uh, I, there, there was a guy, we're going to broadcast this, right? So I'm not going to use his name. Okay. But there was a guy that I really, really disliked in science fiction, and I went through a period where I talked to or mentioned him to maybe a dozen people, and out of the dozen, at least five explained to me vehemently that they were the worst enemy that this man had on Earth. And after a while, I started feeling kind of sorry for it, you know. Uh, not very, but kind of. But uh, uh, I, Neil is, uh, you know, the very opposite of that. If I said I were the best friend that Neil had, I think that there are probably a whole bunch of other people who feel the same way, you know. Which is a fine tribute to the man. I, I, he deserves fond tribute. Mm-hmm. I think I know the bad guy you're talking about, but I won't mention his name either. Well, I, I'm pre- pretty sure you do. Yeah, but but any but there there's something. Um, it's not just that Neil is a is a very uh, enthusiastic supporter of yours and an enthusiastic writer in his own regard. But I have I've not read his introduction to the new edition of Peace, but. We've had a number of conversations, and he really is a careful, informed Gene Wolfe reader. I mean, he knows your work inside and out. Uh, That's that's very flattering. I know that's true, and it is very flattering, you know. Yeah, because he's certainly somebody who has uh, a a substantial following of his own. I was trying to remember the story. He's a very substantial following of his own. He is a popular, my God. He he went to Japan and came back practically blind because they kept flashing cameras at him. Yes, I see. Now he's not going to do any more signing tours for those sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. 
I I used to know Stephen King, and I was at a con up in Canada somewhere with Stephen King, and he told me that there was a group of about six fans who would wait outside his hotel room door, and whenever he came out of his room, they would follow him wherever he went, and it was driving him nuts, you know? Yeah. And that kind of thing can happen. No, I've had I've talked to a number of writers who have had almost varying degrees of popularity, and, and all of them understood exactly why Stephen King wrote the novel Misery. And in at least a few cases, Misery was their favorite novel because it was the one that is every writer's nightmare of becoming too popular. I haven't read that. I should get it. You should. I mean, it was made into a very disturbing film uh, with Kathy Bates. Yes, Kathy Bates won an Oscar, I think, for it. Yeah, and it's wow. it's a, it's about a dedicated fan who kidnaps her favorite writer because he's killed off her favorite character, and she imprisons him and tortures him until he agrees to write a sequel. Hmm. So just just yeah. in case, yeah. you know, Gene, if you ever run across anybody who really really wants to see more books of, why well, haven't you done the? We haven't done the done book what? of what? I was going to say, somebody wants another series of Sun novels. Oh, I know there's some, uh, somebody we're talking to was asking if there's going to be another Letro, Soldier in the Mist novel. Well, yeah, people want to know about the Soldier in the Mist. Yeah, I, I hesitate to write another one of those just because it takes so damn much research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not a historian, and I have to read a lot. And... I have learned that the hardest stuff to find out is what is it that nobody knows, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, You can read an awful lot about ancient Greece, and they will never tell you the things that nobody knows about ancient Greece. You've got to slowly uncover those for yourself. And now you'll ask me what they are, and I, I can't remember. <laughs> but, there are mistakes in the, in the books, in the textbooks, that after a while you catch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, had, uh, I had a book that showed, or purported to show, the position of the Greek fleet and the uh, Persian fleet at the Battle of Salamis. And if the positions of those ships had been as the book showed them, Greece would have lost the war. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. <laughs> and they won. And I, have you ever read much about Themistocles? No. No. He, he's, he's wonderful. He's an ancient Greek politician. And you know that he had been born when we were born, he would now be a mayor or former mayor of Chicago. (laughs) He had everything down, you know. Mm. Everything was there already. Themistocles had it. He was the first uh, politician to hire uh, what was essentially a PR man and all this. And, of course, he was done in by the Spartans who gave him a solid silver chariot. Mm-hmm. And he accepted it, and it destroyed him, which was what the Spartans wanted. Oh, well. <laughs> I get off on these topics. That's I'm sorry. Terrific. No, no, don't apologize. Think, That's I think, what we're here for. I think destroying a politician with a solid silver chariot is about as science fictional as you can get. And it was done way back there. And you read about the Spartans, and they make the Nazis look like Boy Scouts. Well, they, yeah, they were that. just incredibly bad. Just unbelievably wicked people. It was just a, it was this nightmarish uh, subculture, or whatever you want to call it. One of the things I thought was fascinating about the Sidon novels, and I've seen this rarely elsewhere, but I have seen it elsewhere, is the notion that if you're writing from within the worldview of characters who believe in supernatural figures and the gods speaking to them and so forth, then 
That's not fantasy. You're writing within a reality that believes in those figures. And therefore, mm -hmm. historical fiction at some point becomes indistingu indistinguishable from fantasy if you're accepting that worldview. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that people in a certain period had a certain moral code. Mm -hmm. And if you do what so many people do, and you superimpose a modern moral code on them, you have falsified the whole damn thing. Because it wasn't there. That moral code mm -hmm. didn't exist in their time. So even morality has to be invented in civilization. Yeah. You know, a, a guy, people who grow up in a, a uh, culture that says it's all right for a man to have multiple wives if he can support them, uh, mm -hmm. is not going to decide for himself, gee, it's not all right to have multiple wives. It's wrong. You know, nuts. Doesn't happen. Mm-mm. Can I ask you whether, because you're talking about research, the amount of time it takes to do research, particularly in, a, in, one, of, in one of the, the soldier books, is there a common shape to how you go about a, you know, writing a novel, a, a common process to how you go through it? Well, I have an idea for a novel and I have a setting for it and begin working from those things. Uh, if... Uh, I want a certain type of person if I want a certain type of setting and what is this type of person going to do in this type of setting and what problems is he apt to encounter and so on and so forth or she mm -hmm. uh, you know you could you can write female protagonist and mm -hmm. uh, there are differences between men and women but they are not radically different uh, an American man is much more like an American woman than he is like a Chinese man. That's an interesting point. Well, one of the things that uh, is related to that is something that everybody talks about. All, the, all, all of us literary critic types love to talk about in your work are unreliable narrators. Um, and sometimes not knowing they're unreliable narrators at the same time, which can make it more complicated. Certainly. But I remember you're saying once... Uh, and it's, it's either in conversation or I read it somewhere that hey, we're all unreliable narrators anyway, so what's the big deal? Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to have a narrator, it's an unreliable narrator. Uh, unless the thing is being narrated by God, and I, I wouldn't attempt to try that. No, because then you'd be dealing with an unreliable author. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, let me see. It says here, since I'm since I'm looking at my iPad again, that and you're what am I looking at is your Wikipedia entry, which you should never look at, at all, uh, because it's probably wrong. But it says that the land across. Now that's the novel you've already turned into David Hartwell, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the new title of it. I mean, that's the working title. No, that's the title uh, that they're going to use, as far as I know. When's the contract coming? refers to it as the land across. When's that coming out, if it's finished? Do you know? Uh, it's currently scheduled for November. Okay. Now, you know, that is... When a publisher tells you November, he's not making a promise. <laughs> he's making a prediction. Yes, <laughs> I understand. Is there anything you can tell us about the book? Or would you rather wait for it to come out? Uh, I, I can give you a, a brief outline please, of it. If, I love yeah, it, yeah. You, you want it? Yeah, yeah, pl pl please. Uh, it's about a young American who has written one successful travel book about Austria. And he wants to do a travel book about another uh, country, an Eastern European country. Uh, which is never really named in the book. And so he goes there with the intent of writing a travel novel. And he is arrested and uh, is given to a poor schmuck 
who is supposed to uh, keep him under a sort of house arrest and goes on from there and there's all sorts of plot developments. Sounds intriguing. I look forward to it. But, but it sounds like you've already moved on to the book after that. Well, oh yeah, I'm about 170, 180 pages into uh, another book, yeah. Excellent. You just don't stop, do you? Well, sure I do. You know, I have to sleep and eat and shower and well, other things that I won't, <laughs> wouldn't want to name on the radio. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you just have no intention of uh, ever retiring, do you? Well, I don't see why I should if, uh, you know, this is, is what I want to do. This is what I like doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Jack Williamson was still writing in his 90s. Uh, I'm an old guy, but I'm younger than Jack Williamson. <laughs> right. Um, well, that's a uh, question. Jack, did I tell you about Jack uh, taking us to the library? Um, no. The college library there in Portales? That's the Jack Williamson. Rosemary and me, and there is a Williamson branch or wing to the library. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, you know, Jack, in his old age, got a Ph.D. and taught mm -hmm. at that university. And so, hell, he was a faculty member. <laughs> they have a branch of the library for him. And he pulled out a file drawer, and he took out one of these bedsheet-sized magazines that they had before Pope magazines. Mm-hmm. These magazines were gone by the time I learned to read, you know. And it was dated five years before Rosemary and I were born, wow. 1926. And it had Jack Williamson's first published story in it. Wow. He, he was he was a living dinosaur by the time he died. The generation, not only was the generation that he had belonged to completely gone except for him, the generation that had succeeded that generation was entirely gone. And he was still there. He was still there and still writing, yeah. Yes, well, wasn't the story yeah, that he'd gone still out... Still writing, still producing, yeah. Wasn't the story that he'd gone out west in a covered wagon in... 1915 he, or something? He went He went to Portales, New Mexico, riding in a covered wagon. Absolutely true. His parents had been running a ranch in Mexico. It mm -hmm. didn't belong to them. They had been hired managers uh, for the ranch. His father, you know, had been the manager of the ranch. And uh, Mexico got so bandit-ridden, so crime-ridden, that they left driving a covered wagon, and went up across the Rio Grande and to Portales, New Mexico, and got land there and started a ranch there. And Jack Williamson was a little kid riding in the back of that covered wagon. Wow. And yet th these kind of living dinosaurs aren't that uncommon. I mean, I, was, I saw a thing the other day where, first of all, apparently there, was, there used to be a quiz show in the United States in the 50s, uh, where someone would come on and they'd reveal their secret. People would ask them, I forget the name of it. Oh, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. That's exactly That's what it is. And in one episode, there, there this 92-year-old man come on, and his secret was that he'd been in the theater when Lincoln was shot. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and you go, well, that sounds extraordinary, even though if you work out the time, he's like probably five or six or something. But they say right now there are... 10 women alive in the United States whose fathers served in the Civil War. That would not surprise me at all. I, I remember when there were still living men yeah. who were veterans of the Civil War. They were very old men. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was born in 1931, and, you know, do the math. Uh, mm. uh, as very young men, they had been in involved in civil war. Uh, oh, what was I going to say here? Uh, Algis Budris had seen Hitler oh, wow. in the flesh. He's the only person that I ever knew who had actually seen Hitler, Adolf Hitler. 
How did and that come to be? Did he tell you the story? Yeah. He was a little boy, and Hitler was a parade, and Hitler came by through in standing up in an open car, and uh, his father lifted him up over the head of the crowd so that he could see the great man. Wow. I remember That's his... That, I, I can even give you more detail. That was in Königsberg, East Prussia, where he was a child, and... According to AJ, he must have said the same thing to Eugene at some point. That was when he realized that living in Europe, he was surrounded by werewolves. Mm-hmm. And what frightened him? What frightened him was not seeing Hitler. What frightened him was the response of the crowd, which apparently mm-hmm. absolutely scared him as a small child. Mm-hmm. I asked a, a German who had been in the German army during World War II one time, not the one who was a stormtrooper. I knew an ex-stormtrooper too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had just been a soldier in the German army, the guy I was talking to. And, and how was it? Uh, why did people follow Hitler the way they did? And he said, you had to be German and you had to hear him speak to understand it. Mm-hmm. I actually showed in one of my classes uh, the film Triumph of the Will, uh, mm-hmm. which has speeches in it. And none of the students, including myself, could understand German. But, and that's such a well-made film in, in, in just purely technical terms that I had a couple of students at the end of the class saying, it sounded pretty good to me. I mean, those were really, that was a really dramatic sounding speech. I had students who were practically won over by the force of his rhetoric and the force of that filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is frightening. I could easily imagine <laughs> Well, Gary, as sometimes happens, we're getting towards the end of our hour with chatted and rambled probably as long as we should so it might be an appropriate time to look to wind up I think so I just uh, once we start talking about people who met Hitler we're probably drifting from our core topic but we're having a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) well we're basically talking about writers Uh, Budras was a writer and a good one and, uh, you know, he wrote Who? Come on. A great book. And uh, Williamson, my lord. John Shirley came. We had a, a, a workshop, a Milford workshop one time. With John, John Shirley was there. And he and I left together for some reason. We were going to go get coffee or something. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jack Williamson is a grand old man. I have heard of grand old men all my life. I have been pointed toward people that other people said were grand old men, and they were all frauds. <laughs> Jack Williamson <laughs> really is a grand old man. There really is such a thing as a grand old man. That's Jack Williamson. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And these yeah. terms like contraterrene matter and terraforming and things that you know have been part of the science fiction vocabulary for 70 years, it's hard to believe that, you know, that we met somebody who coined those terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But again, thanks much. And maybe, maybe we can chat, maybe we'll think up some more writers to talk about and chat again sometime. Right. I'd like it very much. And with that, thank you very much, Gene, for joining us this evening. It's been a great pleasure and we're very, very grateful to you for spending the time with us. I've had fun, believe me. Okay. Okay. And Gary, as always, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Okay. Have a good week. Okay. Bye.